Good morning, church. Today's reading is Romans 2, 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. These are the words of our Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. Did you recognize any voices on that video there? Like Jace, our youth pastor? He sounds very religious, very self-righteous, holier than thou. What's up with that? No, he's just acting, of course. Keep them in your prayers. He's up north, as you probably know, with a, a whole bunch of our high school students and uh, they're having a great time. Pray for their safe return. And so the book of Romans, how the gospel changes everything. How the gospel changes everything. I love the gospel. I love this book. The more I've gotten into this book, the more I love it. I mean, it's really um, greater than what I anticipated. And we're only like, this is our third week into it. And I'm like, whoa, this is great. This is unbelievable. And of course, I know that many of you are convinced that the gospel is nothing like the gospel. Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then the Greek. He's covering the full spectrum of people, the religious and the irreligious. All of us fit into one of those two categories before Christ. And so that's what we're going to talk about here today. Religion can't save you. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Nothing can transform a human heart, heal a wounded soul and satisfy our deepest longing like the gospel. And so if you got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 16. We're going to spend most of our time on verse 1, and then we'll knock out the rest of it kind of rapidly after that. And uh, so Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Let me ask you this question. What are the three basic ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment in life? Everybody fits in one of these three categories. If you have a set of notes in front of you, that's your cheat sheet. You kind of know that right now, what that is. The three ways, actually two of those ways, are best depicted in the prodigal son story, also known as the lost son story, which I think is the wrong kind of title for it, because both sons in that story, the elder brother, younger brother, are both lost. 
So we tend to focus on the younger brother. But you guys familiar with the story? Show of hands? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so, so the, the younger brother comes. By the way, the, the whole chapter starts, the 15th chapter of Luke starts with Jesus hanging out with, with sinners. And guess who's complaining about it? Oh, yes, the Pharisees, the very self-righteous religious group. And they're saying, we can't believe that he's a friend of sinners. And so Jesus, in rapid fire, begins to share three stories. One, the lost sheep, one, the lost coin. And then he comes to the father with two sons. And the younger son comes to his father, obviously prematurely before he's dead, says, I want my inheritance. That was an insult to the father. I would rather, be, I would rather that you be, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. But since you're not dead, I want my inheritance uh, ahead of time. So very much an assault, an insult to the father. So the father lovingly gives his inheritance to him. He runs off and lives a wild, crazy life, picking up prostitutes, blows all of his inheritance. He has no more money. Famine hits the land. Where does he find himself in? Anybody? Pig pen. Yeah, he's in a pig pen. He's starving to death. And he comes to his senses. And he realizes, wait a minute, my dad is a good guy, and his hired hands, his hired servants are doing better than what I'm doing. I know what I'll do. And he begins to come up with this, uh, this, this speech that he's going to give his dad. So he heads back home, and this is the best part of the whole story, one of the best parts of the whole story. Guess who sees him from a distance? The father. So the father had been looking for him this whole time, and he sees him at a distance. And the father does what? He runs out to him, which was very unlike the, the men of those days. The patriarchs would never run. Women would run. Children would run, but not patriarchs because they have to pull up, pull up their, their robe, kind of show their legs and run. He runs out to him, and literally in the Greek it says, and he just smothers him with affection and love. And so the, the younger son begins to give a speech. He says, Father, and, and by the way, if you listen to speech, it's true repentance. He says, I sinned against God. That's where we always sin against first. So I sin against God. I sin against you. I don't even deserve to be your, your son. Make me one of your hired hands. Almost like he thought he could earn it back somehow and work for it. And before he even finishes up with his speech, the father interrupts his speech and says, hey, never mind that. Put a robe on his back, ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, which all are, have profound implications of, of sonship. You're still my son. He embraces him, loves him, throws a party, butchers a fattened calf. And meanwhile, the elder son is out working on the farm, comes up close to the home. Here's the party. He asks one of the servants, what's going on? Servant says, your brother has come home and your dad's thrown a party. They butchered the fattened calf. And the, younger, and the older brother throws a fit. He's angry. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what is a religious attitude? What do self-righteous religious people look like? And so you can see there on your notes, there's three basic ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment in life, irreligion, self-discovery, breaking or making up all the rules. That's the younger brother. That's the younger brother. Or there's religion, moral conformity, keeping all the rules. That's the elder brother. Now, immediately, some people would say, well, what did he do wrong? He kept all the rules. Well, he did all the rules for the wrong reason, as you will see. The third way to live. By the way, this is the best way to live. It's the gospel, life in Christ. There's nothing like this life in Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. And as I, as I quoted that first part of that, so, so Paul, in writing this, establishes the thesis statement for the whole book of Romans. And so he gives us that in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Greek. And then he describes the gospel in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, this isn't a righteousness that you give to God so that He can accept you or reject you. This is a righteousness that He gives to us by grace through faith in Christ. Totally different from any religion on the planet. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from beginning and ending in faith. So this is about a relationship with God. You put your faith in Christ. You receive His righteousness. He takes all of your sinfulness and he did that on the cross so that we can stand perfect and in right relationship with God. In fact, he ends this verse by saying, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 
2.4. So this is about intimacy with God. It's about knowing God. It's about having a relationship with God. That's when you think of faith, think of trusting, relying, walking, enjoying, experiencing God. And that's a gift. And that's what he's saying there. Now, both sons are lost. Take a look at your notes. Both sons are trying to be their own Savior and Lord. Both sons are using the Father to get his wealth more than his love. You just do it in two different ways. One takes his inheritance and goes out and spends it like crazy. The other one's going to work hard for the inheritance. But both of them want his wealth more than his love, more than the relationship with the father. But here's the catch. Here's what's interesting. The elder brother is, a more serious, is in a more serious condition of spiritual blindness through self-righteousness. Hey, listen to me. It's called pride. The more pride you have, the less you can see. He cannot see that because it totally blinds him. Now, out of all three of these, I never did the irreligion gig. I encountered Jesus at a young age and never went south. Never did that. I just thought, oh, that's stupid. But I have to say, I've had a few seasons in the religious side. I mean, and I think that's the default mode of a lot of Christians, is that we tend to fall prey to religion, and it feeds our ego and our pride, and the more we have, the less we can see. That's why we need to talk about that this weekend. Now, here's what's, uh, what's interesting here is that many make the fatal mistake of confusing religion with the gospel. To most people in our society, Christianity is religion and moralism. Did you know that? So when you're inviting them to follow Christ, most people will think, oh, okay, okay yeah, yeah, I got to get my act together. I got to start working hard on myself so that I can offer a righteousness to God that maybe that he will either accept or reject. No, 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 that could not be further from the truth. So therefore, you have to be very clear in your explanation between irreligion, religion, and the gospel. Hopefully, if you're not clear on that, you'll be clear on that this morning as we work our way through this text now, take a look at your notes once again. After Paul established the gospel, Romans 1, 16 through 17, he then came after the irreligious. That's what we talked about last week in Romans 1, 18 through 32, the younger brothers, to show them why you can't save yourself. And now in this text, he comes after the religious, Romans 2, this whole chapter actually, and a little bit into chapter 3, elder brothers to show them why religion can't save you. Now, we know that he's talking about the religious based on verse 17, and he's addressing the Jews specifically, but in generally, he's talking about the religious. Now, you guys know, last week, uh, we talked about this, that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Listen, you do not want God oppose you. That's the reason why we gotta be aware of our pride. Hard messages produce soft people. Soft messages produce hard people. Once again, this is a hard message. And the intent is to make you soft so that you can be humble and experience God's grace. I'm telling you, there's nothing like God's grace, nothing like His favor in your life. When He's for you and not against you, that's a great way to live, not a better way to live. And so as we, as we approach this this morning, I just pray that God would... Uh, that our hearts would be soft, that our hearts would be softened, that, that we would be receptive to what he speaks to us, and then we would confess and repent if we see any bit of this religious attitude in us this morning. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. God, through this message and through your word, oftentimes you disturb the comfortable and you comfort the disturbed. And, the disturbed. and so, Lord, I pray that you're your word would speak to our hearts, and we pray this morning, Psalm 139, 23, and 24, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. Psalm 86, 11, teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Give us an undivided heart that we may fear your name. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. So why religion can't save you? Take a look at verse one of our text. We're gonna spend a little time on this as I stated. Therefore, you have no excuse. So he's making reference back to the previous verses in chapter 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, 
You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Now, here's what he's saying. Religious people are very judgmental while doing the very same things. One of the very same things. Well, I think if you went back to chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, that's what he was referring to. And he gives us a whole list, covetousness, envy, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, insolent, arrogant, boastful, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, quite a list there. And so what he's saying here, and the tendency for being religious is we tend to, exp- we tend to focus on externals rather than internals. We focus on our actions versus our attitudes, and our attitudes are what ultimately drives our actions. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, when you study the Sermon on the Mount, basically Jesus is comparing and contrasting two groups of people, the religious and those that understand the gospel. And he talked to them about uh, in that day and time, he said, it's taught you shall not murder. But I say, if you have hatefulness in your heart towards your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. In other words, you have seeds of murder in your heart. When you have that hatefulness, that's the idea that he's getting at here. Though you might not have murdered anybody, maybe you haven't committed adultery, but you've had those seeds in your heart, and that's just as deadly, because if those seeds are watered over time, you will be acting out. And so the tendency with the religious attitude is to look really good on the external, but on the internal, not so good. Look really good in public, but in private, there's a disparity That's called hypocrisy, by the way. And this is why he's coming after them. And so, what are the characteristics of the religious, the Pharisees, or the elder brothers? Now, we're going to go back to the the story of the prodigal son or the lost son, lost sons, I, I think it's better titled, and we're going to look at the elder brother's attitude, and I'll be making reference. You don't need to turn there, but I'll make reference to how he responds to this whole situation of his younger brother coming home. Now, we live in a culture of criticism that has a harsh spirit of judgmentalism. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it's all, it's in our culture. I mean, you you see it on Facebook, you see it on Instagram, um, especially on Twitter. I just want you to know, you guys know this, I've been attacked, you've been attacked, this church has been attacked ruthlessly, unbelievably. And just, you just have to expect that. I, was, I had a, a, an atheist dogging me there for a little while. Everything I would post, he'd just come after me and attack anybody that was attached to that. And uh, fortunately, uh, there's a nice little button on, uh, on Facebook, unfriend, because the guy had a very self-righteous, he didn't, wasn't, didn't want to learn anything. He wasn't asking honest questions. See, humility will ask honest questions. Pride refuses to hear the answers. And so, I I don't give much time to people that have the self-righteous, holier than thou. They don't want to learn anything. They just want to come after you. Okay, I'm done with you. And so, you've got to have some good boundaries in your life. And we'll talk more about that as we work through that, but that's the culture we live in. I'm for our First Amendment rights of free speech, but not judgmentalism. And I think we've become a very, we've become a culture of criticism that has a harsh spirit of judgmentalism. And I believe it's demonic. I think it's extremely demonic culture because why? Satan is known as an accuser. He wants to demolish people. In fact, accusation, condemnation, criticism, cancel culture is very demonic. That's what he's about. That's not the gospel. That's not Christ. And so, When this infiltrates the church, which I've seen this infiltrate the church, it creates a culture of hiding and hurling. We've had that infiltrate our church. A couple years ago, we had that infiltrate our church. And fortunately, God did some incredible house cleaning during that time. This is what I found that oftentimes elder brothers don't stay long here. They either repent or they move on. Because we, are, we have a gospel culture. We want to continue to create a gospel culture. By the way, when you have a gospel culture to progressive Christianity, you look legalistic. That is, to liberal Christianity, you look legalistic. And to legalistic Christianity, you look liberal. Does that make sense? So there's this balance. As you, as you are trying to understand and live out the gospel to some different groups of people, you're going to look differently, but you've got to stay the course you got to stay on the gospel, and that's important. 
And, and, and so when this infiltrates the church, it creates a culture, this whole blame, this, this whole idea, this spirit of judgmentalism, this culture of criticism infiltrates the church. It creates a culture of hiding and hurling, blame shifting. Genesis 3, remember Adam and Eve? They were naked and felt tons of shame. And what did they do? They hid and then they blame shifted on each other. And so that's what it creates. Healing begins where hiding and hurling ends. Hiding and hurling ends when you have a gospel culture. Gospel culture is a, go is a culture of love, honesty, humility, forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust. And this is what I've discovered through the years. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they may be more full of elder brothers than we would like to think. Here's the nightmare that I have from time to time of when I kind of read through this story is that the father's been looking for the son and all of a sudden he's, he might have to go to the restroom. And he goes into the restroom and lo and behold, guess who sees the brother, the younger brother, coming on the horizon, the elder brother, and he gets to him before the father gets to him, and he beats the living daylights out of him. I don't know how many times I've seen that happen. Elder brothers just pounding on younger brothers because they're self-righteous, they're judgmental, they're holier than thou, kind of a mindset. By the way, as we talk about elder brothers, we don't want to become an elder brother to elder brothers, okay? We don't want to become Pharisees to Pharisees. Does that make sense? So we got to watch our attitude. You don't become, over, you don't become overcome by evil. You, don't over, you overcome evil with good. You don't become overcome by what is being done to you. You don't become, I'm confusing here, aren't I? <laughs> What the heck is he saying? Okay, hang in there. I think I had too much caffeine this morning. I'm just like, woo -hoo -hoo! and I love the gospel. I'm just like lit up this morning. But uh, of course, I'm lit up every morning, aren't I? Huh? How much? Some of you are thinking like, how much caffeine did that dude have this morning? Uh, probably too much. Okay, so uh, let me see if I can say it again. It's actually, I was trying to quote... Uh, 1221, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't become like the evil that's being done to you. Don't become a Pharisee to the Pharisees. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> Woo, I got it. Let's close in prayer before I mess up anything else. Okay, okay. that's how I'm feeling. Okay, so, okay, where are we here? Okay, yeah, so, okay, anyway. So here, I'm gonna give you a list here. These are the characteristics of elder brothers of Pharisees. And as we work through this list, think of them as a spectrum, because I'm going to go to some extremes on these, and you're going to go, oh, that's not me. Well, it, there could be a hint of it, you know, in your life. So just be aware, maybe, so like a spectrum from lesser to greater, and, and so just be aware of that. You don't even want a hint of any of these in your life, because you're, you could be heading down that path of elder brother, uh, self-righteous kind of an attitude. Here's the first one is unforgiveness. Hold grudges long and bitterly. So in Luke 15, 28, listen to how the, the younger brother or the elder brother responds. But he was angry and refused to go in. So he finds out that there's a party. He asks one of the servants, what's going on? Well, your younger brother's come home. Dad's throwing a party. He's butchered the fattened calf. The fattened calf? What? I mean, he's just like, and, he's, and it says, but he was angry and refused to go in. That's Luke 15, 28. Check this out. And his father came out and entreated him. The word entreated means tenderly pleading. Tenderly pleading with them. It is impossible to forgive someone you feel superior to. He is saying in his heart, I would never do anything like that. And actually, he has the seeds of all of that in his heart. He just doesn't recognize it. It's because he's out of touch with the sinfulness of his, of his own heart. You see, forgiven people are forgiving people. Unforgiving people are not living in the reality of how much God has forgiven them. I know forgiveness is hard. 
I'm not minimizing what anybody has experienced at the hands of a perpetrator. I got it. I've been perpetrated against. I've had people hurt me terribly. And it took me a while to work through that. But this is how I did it. I had to keep going back to how much God has forgiven me and receive his forgiveness so then I could offer that to others. Remember the, the Lord's Prayer? There's the a section. It's, it's kind of a section. I call it taking out the trash, dealing with the junk in our life. We don't do that regularly. This is where we start having unforgiveness in our heart. And so he says, forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. So we're only able to forgive others in direct proportion to how much we're receiving his forgiveness of us. And when I'm unforgiving, it's because I forgot the cross. I forgot the cross tells me regularly when I look at it that I was so sinful Jesus had to die for me. By the way, whatever someone has sinned against you is nothing compared to what you have already sinned against God. That's the comparison when you study uh, Scripture, and that's really what the Bible wants us to understand. No matter how bad that sin may be against you, the Bible still says that our sin against the holy, righteous God is much more. You were so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. There was no other way for you to be reconciled to the Father. And when you forget that, you have an inability to really forgive. So there's that self-righteousness with this elder brother. So you got unforgiveness. The next one, it's going to turn into bitterness. If you don't deal with that, it's going to turn into bitterness inevitably. And that bitterness, an undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances. Hebrews 12.15 says, Don't miss the grace of God and let a bitter root grow up and cause trouble and defile many cause trouble with you like a cancer that eats away at your soul and then you're toxic and nobody wants to be around you. You ever been around a toxic person? An older person that has gotten bitter through the years? That's, that starts with unforgiveness, turns into bitterness. Luke 15, 29, but he answered his father. Now keep in mind the father is entreating him, tenderly pleading, and he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. Hear, hear a little attitude? <laughs> yeah. Elder brothers believe that if you live a good life, you deserve a good life. If you're living up to moral standards and life doesn't go well, they're mad at God. I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed. I drop money in the box, and I get cancer? What's up with that, God? Or my kids go south? I've heard that. I've heard that from people, and I'm going, whoa, that's moralism. See, the good life is lived not for delight in the good deeds themselves or for the glory of God and the good of people, but as a calculated way to control their circumstances, to eliminate pain or problems. It's morality that is self-serving. It's not morality because you want to honor God and honor the people in your life. It's to keep the heat off. It's very paganistic. If we do good, it'll keep the gods off our back. It's very moralistic. That's a bitterness. And so it goes from unforgiveness, bitterness, to moralistic. It's very moralistic. We've got to understand this idea of being moralistic. Life is a joyless, crushing drudgery motivated by fear and pride. Hey, you guys know this. I could teach you how to have good conflict resolution skills and communication skills and all that, all for the wrong reasons. I could teach you to be moral, all for the wrong reasons, for selfish reasons. I've oftentimes seen pastors actually teach people. I'm thinking, what? You're teaching them to be moral out of fear and pride? That's extrinsic motivation. That's self-serving kind of way to get people to do good things. Now, I'm not against people doing good things out of selfish reasons. The problem is it's not going to last. See, as a Christian, the difference between fear and pride motivation, uh, the difference between uh, being motivated kind of selfishly and self-centeredly out of fear and pride, it, it, that's different from having a heart that's smitten and captivated by the beauty and the love of Christ. You're responding out of it's more intrinsic. Your heart has been changed. It's not outside in, self-centered, serving you, but it's inside out. You want to honor Christ. 
See, pride is like, you don't want to be like those losers over there. Or pride is, God's going to get you if you don't get your act together. See, those are wrong motivations. They'll only last as long as the gun is on your temple. That's extrinsic motivation. You want to have intrinsic motivation. Because when there's no longer the gun on your head, people aren't watching. You're not concerned about God seeing what you're doing. You're going to fall prey to sin. You're doing it out. We sin because we're selfish. We can be moral because we're selfish. But you don't become moral out of self-centeredness. You do it out of God-centeredness. And this, that's the difference between this idea of being moralistic. Life is a joyless, crushing drudgery motivated by fear and pride. Luke 15, 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. He's very moralistic. So let me define moralism versus the gospel. You, you guys should have this down by now. Moralism goes like this, I obey God, therefore God accepts me, loves me, and blesses me. The gospel says this, God accepts me and blesses me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. Did you hear the difference? You have all the blessing and acceptance you'll ever need in Christ Jesus. And when that gets a hold of your heart, oh my goodness, it is a pleasure to obey God. Listen to what what he says here in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. The love of God that we, man, when you fall in love with God, of course you're going to honor him. I mean, besides the fact that he's a whole lot smarter than us, okay? It's like, he's smarter than me. Oh, and he's a whole lot more loving than me. And he actually has my best interest at heart. Mm, it just makes sense. Very logical. I'm going to obey him. In every area that I'm not obeying him, I'm going to make sure I start obeying him. And so, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because he empowers us with his presence. I love what John Newton said, who wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote another hymn, and he put it like this, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty are joined to part no more. In other words, when we see His beauty, both our duty and our pleasure are one and the same. Do we want to obey Him? Yeah, and we love obeying Him. We love to serve Him. There's not a more fulfilling, satisfying life than to honor God and to obey Him. But to do it, like we said, in this kind of… in this kind of moralistic way, life is a joyless, crushing drudgery motivated by fear and pride. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. Here's the next one. Leads to superiority. So you got unforgiveness, bitterness, moralistic superiority. Look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyles. Luke 15, 30. But when this son of yours came, so this is the elder brother talking. When this son of yours came, I mean, he doesn't even call him his brother. My wife and I used to do that from time to time with our kids when they were acting out. I would say, hey, your kids are acting out right now. Those are your kids. They're not my kids. Look how mean they are. They're only my kids when they're good. Any parent can relate to that? Okay. They're your kids when they're bad. He's kind of doing that right here. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, if I don't get my identity from the Creator, I'm going to inevitably get it from creation. i got to get it from somewhere. So it's either the Creator or creation. I'm going to get it from my race, my religion, my lifestyle, my marriage, my kids. Through competitive comparison, it will either inflate me or deflate me. If you really looked at your highs and lows in life, it's probably because you've misplaced your identity in a created thing that maybe at that moment when you're feeling deflated, it's letting you down as opposed to having the stability of getting your identity from from Christ. A.W. Tozer puts it like this. He says, a Pharisee is hard on others and easy on himself, but a spiritual man is easy on others and hard on himself. I started thinking of of Jesus when he said, judge not lest ye be judged, seventh chapter of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Then a little bit later on, (laughs) it's it's a bit of Hebrew humor. We don't get it because we're not Hebrew. But he he tells his uh, disciples, he says, don't be so concerned about the speck in your brother's eye when you have what in your eye? What is it? A log, a telephone pole. (laughs) And so they've had to have laughed. Oh, 
that's so funny. He's going, yeah, it, it is funny, but not so funny, okay? Because you get so preoccupied with the little speck in your friend's eye that your sins to you should be that much bigger. In fact, you have so much more, you know, so much sin in your life, not so much more, but we all have a lot of sin in our life, that you could spend the rest of your life just concerned about your own sin and less concerned about everybody else's sin. It's a kind of a, it's a form of deflection. If I can focus on you and I see how messed up you are, it makes me feel really good about myself. And I think that's why uh, over the last couple decades, a lot of this kind of those TV shows, reality TV shows were so popular because, man, those people are really messed up. It's like, oh, my goodness. I would never respond like that. These people are stupid. I mean, did you ever feel like that? I did very self-righteously. It's like, oh, man. It's because we like, it, it takes it off of us. Oh, look at them. This is that idea, this attitude of superiority. Pharisees tend to judge people superficially by where they are rather than how far they have come. We have no idea what people are up against. And we can be so quick to judge. Oh, those people are messed up. You have no idea. This is progress for them, and you're thinking that they're way behind. I mean, and that's just the way it is. Okay, so you got unforgiveness, bitterness, moralistic, superiority, and then the next one. The next one is disgust. Fierce and merciless, sanctimonious condemning of others. Luke 15, 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. There is a major difference between judgmentalism and discernment. I'm not in any way saying we shouldn't be discerning. Hebrews 4, uh, 5, 14 talks about we need to be discerning. We need to we need to say, hey, that's sinful. Man, that's wicked. That's evil. We need to recognize it in our own lives. We need to be able to recognize it in other people's lives. And we need to recognize it in our culture. In fact, it tells us in Ephesians 4, 15 and 25, we need to speak the truth in love. So what's the difference between being judgmental and being discerning? The difference is mainly attitude. It's the difference between being a critic and a coach It's not what they see, but what they say. So the question is, are you trying to build a bridge or drive a wedge? Are you trying to be helpful or hurtful? Are you trying to reach? Are you trying to repel? We need to be people about love, relationships, second chances, coaching, not criticizing. So there's a difference between the two. There's a, there's a toxic attitude in American culture these days. And we're swimming in it, and so easily we fall prey to it as believers. I see Christians going after one another on Facebook, attacking this religious group, attacking this other religious group. It's horrible. And, and that, that attitude is infiltrated the church. And so this gospel culture really means treating every person in every encounter as an infinitely precious being in the image of God, never demeaning and condescending in any way, but being so melt in your mouth sweet towards them that they may disagree with you, but they cannot deny your love for them. You can disagree, and yet they can walk away saying, I don't agree with a thing that they say, but I can't deny the fact that they really love me. That's what you want. That's, that's the attitude that God wants us to have. Tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. So how do you treat people who disagree with you? Then ritualistic. Man, this guy's got a whole list here. That's a, that's a long list. There's a lot here. I could, we could probably add more to the list. Ritualistic. Little or no awe and wonder in their intimacy with God. 
Matthew 6, 5 through 15. I gave you a number of cross-references. I encourage you as you go through this this week is to read the cross-references that kind of build into each of these. But he was talking about praying and fasting in private as opposed to public for the approval of others. And, uh, and that's very ritualistic. He says, little or no awe and wonder in their intimacy with God. Luke 15, 31, and he said to him, now these are just such tender words. These are amazing words by the Father. Remember, he entreated him. And so he, he comes with him to him tenderly and pleading, and he said to him, now he's speaking to the elder brother. He says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Those words hit me so hard a number of years ago. I was just like, oh my goodness, I have no idea what I have in God. I'm not even living close to that. In just those few words. Now, a number of years ago, this is how I would have responded uh, as a self-righteous elder brother. I, if, if, if I had a son doing that, I would have walked out to him and said, hey, dude, get your act together. As much as I've served you, I put a roof over your head, food on the table for you. You get a chance to work on the farm here, and your brother was lost. Now he's found. You get your hind in in there and celebrate with the rest of us. That's kind of how I would have responded. Thank you very much. That's, I told you, I tend to, I, you know, Christians tend to default towards elder brothers. Because it feeds our ego. I'll set him straight. It's like, that set him straight. <laughs> it didn't set him straight. Now, there's an appropriate time to confront people. I'm, you've got to be discerning. But it's how you do it. It's your tone of voice. It's your approach. It's not what you see. It's what you say. Don't be a critic. Be a coach. Oh, my goodness. This dad is a coach. He's a dad. He's a father. I mean, the way that he responds to him. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. This elder brother had left the father without leaving the farm. Did you know that you can leave the father without leaving Bible study, prayer, and church? You can be very ritualistic. You can check the box. There's a major difference between reading your Bible, praying, and going to church like items on a to-do list rather than craving rather than craving a glimpse of the only one who can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. Is that how you read the Bible, pray, come to church? Oh, I want to connect with God. All that is mine is yours. I'm always with you. Son, I love you. That deep connection. There's nothing like it. Of course, that leads to insecurity if we don't have it. That's the next one. Elder brothers are insecure. Little assurance of God's love making them sensitive to criticism and rejection and also quite insensitive to others and very critical. So it kind of works both ways. Luke 15, 31, and he said to him, the word son here in the Greek is very tender words, my child. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. A spirit of self-righteous judgmentalism and criticism comes from insecurity. I'm not living and basking the reality of the Father's love. The more you hear those words ringing in your soul, the less you'll be sensitive to criticism and rejection. What words? You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. You guys familiar with 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. There's nothing more significant than being a child of God. All the accolades, all the achievements, all the accomplishments, all the acquisition of great things doesn't even come close to the significance of being a child of God. And when that rings in your soul... Who cares what people say about you? The God of the galaxy adores you, loves you, thinks the world of you. And you're not going to be critical of others. Because tendency, criticism, we tend to push everybody else down so we can build us up. It's just coming out of insecurity. No, we want them to experience what we're experiencing. Why, why would we try to push them down? Help them to see what you have in Christ Jesus. 
And so it's important to be more of a coach than a critic in that his love can become more real to you than the love of anyone else. It can delight you, console you, strengthen you, lift you up and free you from fear like nothing else. Okay. Woo! You spent the whole front end of this on one verse, Pastor Ray. We've got how many more verses? Fifteen more verses. And we're going to get through them. You guys ready? Buckle your seatbelt. You're going to have to write fast. We're going to walk through this. Because now he, now, now, so he starts off by saying, hey, you guys are just like the people we just talked about. You're just very judgmental and self-righteous. You have the same thing going on in your heart. So he's really leveling the playing field with irreligion, religion. He's wanting to bring them to the gospel. And so we talked about this idea, what is true about God's judgment. Last weekend, we, in, in the teaching that said you can't save yourself, Romans 1, 18 through 32. We talked about the wrath of God. I encourage you, if you didn't listen to it, go online, listen to that message. We also talked about the doctrine of judgment and eternal punishment and why it's important. I'm not going to get into that. There's, there's enough right here for us to, to look at, but he's, he's leveling the playing field and just saying, hey, God's judgment is coming for whether you're religious or irreligious. This is what his judgment is about. And so here's the first one. It is very just. What is true about God's judgment? It is very just. Look at verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The word just means behaving according to what is morally right and fair. So the justice of God is that aspect of his nature that demands punishment for sin. And I just want you to know that at the judgment of Christ, he is morally right and fair. And we will walk away from his judgment and everybody will say, oh my goodness, God is righteous and just and fair in every way. Acts 17.31 talks about his righteous judgment. Here's the next one. He has no double standard. Verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you would judge who judge those who practice such things and yet do, do them yourself that you will escape the judgment? So here's what he's wanting us to understand. Romans 3.23. Eventually we'll get to that, but he's, just, he's saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now think about this just for a minute. Everybody in here, everybody out there, all of us, as we stand before the cross, there's no moral high ground. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fail to see how beautiful and glorious God is. And we tend to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things more than the Creator. 125 of Romans. All of us do that. That's all he's saying. And God has no double standard. Now, the, now, this next one is, is absolutely breathtaking. Right in the middle of this understanding uh, of judgment, he doesn't want any to perish, but all come to repentance. Verse 4 is a memory verse. It's beautiful. I love it. Most of us have memorized it like this. It is the goodness of God that leads to what? Oh, uh, none of you know that, huh? A couple of you. It's the goodness of God that leads to Repentance. In my religious, self-righteous, judgmental attitude, it was the goodness of God that got me out of that. I began to realize, what am I doing on this path when he offers me the gospel? He offers me his love. I don't have to earn it. I can enter into it. I can receive it. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. The irreligious, it's the goodness of God that leads them to repentance. By the way, repentance isn't about face. It's a 180. You're heading down a certain path and you go, what am I doing on this path when what he offers me is so much better? It's a turning from sin to the Savior. It's the goodness of God. Listen to these words. Absolutely beautiful. Or do you presume or take for granted the riches of his, notice the descriptive words of God, of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, or also in some translations, goodness, is meant to lead you to repentance. So the justice of God is that aspect of his nature that demands punishment for sin, but the goodness or the love of God is that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification and reconciliation. This word kindness, God's kindness, I looked that word up. <laughs> It's absolutely breathtaking. The word kindness means he offers friendship to his enemies. I know you despise me and you hate me, but I want you to be my friend at the cost of my son who's going to die in your place for your sins. 
That's why you've heard me say, if the gospel isn't the most amazing thing you've ever heard, you haven't heard it. It's absolutely breathtaking. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Hey, hey, listen, do you hear the heart of God? He doesn't want any to perish. Unlike what is being taught by some big-time theologians out there that God has already picked and choosed who's in and who's out, and nobody gets a choice in the matter. It's called Calvinism. It's called Reformed theology. Their, their soteriology is extremely, puts God in a bad light. God's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He sacrificed His Son for us. By the way, it also tells us in Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Oh my goodness, do you hear the pleading heart of God for all of us? In our sinfulness, he's saying, hey, I've made a way. But those that end up in hell, they don't do that by accident. It's because they have shunned my love. Jesus said it in 319 of John. Here's the truth. Here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. I've given you opportunity after opportunity to come to me, and you have refused me, and you've rejected me. So have it your way. Go your way. He does not force his way into our lives. This is not a shotgun marriage. He, does, he doesn't force his way into our life. You cannot have love and relationship apart from freedom and choice. So when you bring your love to him, nothing moves his heart like that. Nothing moves your heart when you realize you're responding to his extravagant love. Okay. Whew, I had to get off on that just a, tad, just a tad, okay? Here's the next one. Our stubborn delay to repent is storing up his, his judgment for us. Verse 5, but because of your hard and penitent heart, in penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's a hard heart. You've got to recognize when your heart is becoming hard. And I just gave you a list of when that happens. We talked about it last week, this kind of downward spiral, but it starts with unforgiveness, bitterness, moralistic attitude, superiority, you know, this disgust. You become ritualistic and insecure. That's, you're headed down the wrong path. It's important to be able to identify and turn from that. Number five, we are judged according to our works. Now, you might be thinking, what? I thought we were saved by grace. Well, that's what he's saying. God's, uh, Paul's not contradicting himself. Look at verses 6 and 8. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immorality, immortality, I'm sorry, that wasn't right. Immortality, he will give eternal life, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Eternal life, so here's what he's saying, eternal life for those who seek God's glory. There's something when you put your faith in God, it's not just a mental ascent. You're moving into a relationship with God, and your life becomes less self-centered and more God-centered. That's what he's saying. And he's just explaining a little bit more in detail uh, of not some general belief in God, but you connect with the God of the galaxies. It begins to transform your heart. You cannot encounter the creator of the universe and remain the same. You go from being self-centered to God-centered. Eternal life for those who seek God's glory and wrath for those who are self-seeking. I gave you some verses to look at there. Uh, John 6, 28. James 2, 17 and 20, it says, faith without works is dead. So we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Here's the next one. He shows no, no partiality. Verses 9 through 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Do you notice he keeps bringing that up? He's, he's once again leveling the playing field, whether you're religious or irreligious. This is for everyone. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. You know what that spoke to me as I was reading that? God has no secret society of intimate friends. You can boldly come before the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need because it was blood bought. You can be as close to God as you want to be. How many thought that I had a, 
a particularly very close, intimate relationship with God beyond what anybody else could experience. Nobody? Actually, whatever level of intimacy that I have, you can experience too. God has no secret society of intimate friends. He shows no partiality. We can all have access into the throne room of God. You can have intimate relationship with God. And, and how, can, how can you experience more and more of that is to make that the passion of your life. How do you make that the passion of your life? You've got to be convinced that intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. There's not a better reality. There's not a better experience than knowing Him and experiencing Him. And when that becomes the passion of your life, woo! You are going to experience him in ways unlike you've ever experienced him before. So when I talk about, when he's talking about, he shows no partiality. I mean, he's given access to all of us, but it's blood-bought. It's through Jesus. Joy is delighting in the felt presence of our indescribably great and unimaginably good God. The person that would know God must give time to him. So the more you give time to him, the more you get to know him, the more you will grow in your relationship with him. We are judged according to what we know. Now, this answers the question, and I'll let you read this on your own, verses 12 through 15. People will often ask, well, what about people who have never heard about Jesus? He answers that question right here in verses 12 through 15. And this is what he's saying. God will judge everyone based on how they responded to whatever level of revelation they have received. Now, what he's saying in chapters 1 and 2, that everybody on this planet has received the revelation of creation, so we are without excuse. Now, he's talking about the revelation of conscience, that within everyone there's a sense of right and wrong. Otherwise, you wouldn't get so upset over injustice. The reason why you get upset over injustice is because you know in your heart that there's a lawgiver. There's a sense of right and wrong. I don't know if you ever watched one of those postmodern movies where the bad guys get away with murder, and at the end of it, it's like a gut punch as you walk away from the movie, and you go, oh, that was horrible. Why is it so horrible? Because there's a sense of right and wrong in our hearts. When we see someone get away with murder, it's disgusting to us. Why? Because we're image bearers of God, and that sense of conscience is placed within us. That's what he's talking about here. So everyone on the planet has the revelation, general revelation of creation and conscience, and that's what he's talking about. Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much is given, much is required. Here's the last one. The secrets of our soul will be laid bare before Jesus Christ. Verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That should both comfort us and convict us. It should comfort us when you feel all alone, you're struggling, he knows your heart. He's there with you. He understands what you're going through, but it should be very convicting when we're, when we're acting out in, in bad ways. By the way, if you're not getting any comfort or conviction in either way, maybe it could be your heart's getting hard. You're heading down a wrong path, and you need to repent and say, God, I want to hear your voice. I need your comfort. I need your conviction in my life to keep me on track. If there is no final judgment, final day of judgment, what hope is there for this world of sin and suffering? But if there is a final day of judgment, what hope is there for us? Jesus is the answer to both questions. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' first coming, He came to bear our judgment. In His second coming, He will bring judgment. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says that Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Everybody look up here just for a moment. If you don't bow now and confess Jesus is Lord, I'm guaranteeing you that you will bow later and confess Him as Lord and Savior. You don't want to wait until later because He will come at that time and you will bear His wrath. But He's already taken care of that for you if you'll give your life to Him this morning. If you've never given your life to Him, <laughs> I'm telling you, this is the day. This is the day to bow before him and confess him as Lord and Savior. Man, move off of the irreligion or the religion. Man, come to the gospel. Understand what he's done for you, who he is. Now, look at your notes here. The irreligious don't repent at all unless you come to your senses like the younger brother. The religious only repent of sins. More preoccupied with externals. Christians, however, repent of both their sins and their self-righteousness. Next weekend, greater than or equal to, we change the name, Romans 2, 17 through 3, 8. The religious are in need of Christ as much as the irreligious. So obviously the religious need more of this because he's going to put more ink down talking to the religious. We're going to talk about the religious a little bit more of what we tend to do and how we let our pride uh, take us over. So I'm going to be up front at the end of the service 
along with any available elders and leaders. And if you're new here, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you have questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So, Father God, thank you for the gospel, the most amazing truth we have ever heard. It is the good news that you have reconciled us to yourself by sending your Son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. We confess and repent of our sins and of our self-righteousness. May Desert Breeze be a place and a people who love and live the gospel, creating a gospel culture of love, honesty, humility, forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust so that both younger brothers and elder brothers can come home to the extravagant and satisfying love of the Father. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.